Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Folks, we are in Acts chapter 2. You will turn there. I have a, uh, a comment here, an insightful comment from Ben Witherington. I've quoted him back when we were in First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, he also has a commentary on the book of Acts that's very good. Methodist theologian of all things. Some of those in the conservative camp are still, uh, still out there. Um, quite good in some of his insight, and uh, he offers this comment. Quote, no text in Acts has received closer scrutiny than Acts 2. Whole theologies and denominations have been built up around it. We must, therefore, analyze the text carefully. That's observation from our adult Bible class. As we have pointed out already, the, episode, uh, the Pentecost episode immediately follows the story of the filling up of the twelve, says Witherington. Uh, the reason seems to be that the twelve had a special mission to Israel, both in the, presence, at the, in the present as witness to Israel and at the eschaton, sitting on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes." Inasmuch as the gospel had to come first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, the initial task of the twelve was the preaching of the gospel to the Jews. He closes saying, to a large extent, this is exactly, this is exactly what Acts 2 is all about, as we shall see. Uh, the, the preaching of the gospel to the Jews. So, with that well said, I've titled today's message, Here Comes the Bride. Don't say it. Be fruitful and multiply. The bride, of course, is, is Christ's church, which begins in Jerusalem in this passage. Because as our scripture reading from Luke chapter 24 alerted us, forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ it must be proclaimed to all the nations, but it must begin in Jerusalem first. Uh, consequently, the Apostle Paul's reference in Romans chapter 1 uh, that salvation is to the Jew first and then also to the Greek, that is a statement of chronology and geography, uh, not, not a statement of Jewish ethnic superiority. The gospel goes to the Jew first. Now, all of that tracing of genealogies throughout the Old Testament, uh, many records, uh, in the New Testament, that terminates at the birth of Christ. Uh, prophecy assured that Christ had to be a descendant of King David, of the tribe of Judah, etc., etc., uh, everything in Israel, when they tracked these genealogy, genealogies, was ultimately pointing at the birth of the Messiah. Israel had to remain distinct as a nation. They, they had an ethnicity that the Christ had to come from. Uh, if you've uh, 
heard it all about uh, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, about 170 years, 75 years before Christ was born. Uh, he had a goal. He was a goal was just to destroy uh, the the culture, the lineage of the Hebrew people, and uh, most recognize that as a as a satanic attempt to thwart the being able to identify who the Christ was. Um, Christ, Christ was the seed of the nation. He was the child. Israel was the woman, and he completed that link. Now, although Christian, Christians recognize that that there are different ethnicities, diverse ethnicities, we will discover later in Acts and in numerous epistles how God, under the new covenant, now uh, makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Uh, we are actually told uh, through Abraham, we are all children of faith, Romans chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 2.15, we read that God has made the two, both Jew and Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. Paul has an extended discourse in Ephesians chapter 2 of how he has broken down the dividing wall, the barrier between the two through the cross. But the gospel did need to be proclaimed to the Jews first, uh, which we will discover uh, later on in Acts chapter 2 is a large part of Paul's first sermon at uh, Peter's first sermon at Pentecost. And we are going to see that there are some, some pretty big changes under the New Covenant, some major changes, beginning with an observation that, well, the mighty deeds of God are going to be proclaimed in many different languages to many different people having originated from many different nations, foreign nations. So from day one... From the beginning of Christ's church, Jesus is going to be proclaimed as Savior through many Gentile languages. Folks, that, that is just a sample on day one, a, a foretaste of what is to develop later in the book of Acts. So here she comes. It's the bride of Christ. Let's read beginning together in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. This is with the apostles present uh, amongst roughly 120 believers. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came a noise uh, from heaven, a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why, why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? 
And how is it that we hear, uh, we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, uh, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, Oh, they are full of sweet wine. So this, this text at Pentecost illustrates and defines the phenomenon of tongues. Those who call themselves Pentecostals would do well to read Acts chapter 2. Tongues is speaking spontaneously in a foreign language you have never learned before, uh, while a person who grew up in that foreign nation is present to interpret for everyone else. It's like as if Josh Weldon suddenly broke out in perfectly fluent Portuguese, while my wife Rita, who was born and raised in Brazil, interprets for the rest of us. That, that would constitute a divine miracle. Folks, this is the only scriptural definition of glossolalia, tongues. Tongues is never defined or redefined as anything else, anywhere else in scripture. The gift of tongues is never redefined as groanings or any other form of unintelligible babble. Rather, it is easily identified as, well, uttering the mighty deeds of God in an already existing human language. And you never see this phenomenon happen anywhere on the planet today. The people who claim to speak in tongues, uh, they never claim to speak in legitimate human languages, legitimate foreign languages, never. Never. You never see it on YouTube. For this and other reasons, this church believes the Apostle Paul when he states in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 8, Love never fails, but if there are prophecies, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. And as far as any other new sources of revelation, Paul says, uh, it too will be done away. Uh, so Paul prepared the early church to expect that the gifts of prophecy and speaking miraculously in foreign languages would cease. Obviously, since charismatic circles never spontaneously break out in languages untaught, uh, but rather are taught to demonstrate how to babble to one another unintelligibly, uh, we know that the miracle of tongues has ceased. Now, I'm open-minded, and because I'm so open-minded, uh, I am willing to adjust my view. And I, I am willing to acknowledge that tongues may not have ceased. 
on the day that Josh Weldon breaks out in perfectly fluent Portuguese, declaring the mighty deeds of God. Um, because speaking in valid human languages has historically always been the biblical explanation of tongues. Till that happens, Josh, no dice. No dice. Um, next Sunday, I am planning on expanding upon this further. I don't really want to because I just covered this in detail, really in depth, back in February of this year, uh, a prophetic utterances and tongues. Uh, so it would be repeating that same topic again. I don't know, should I do it or not? Tongues again next week? Then we'll take a vote. I will just do it. All right. Back to tongues again next week. Uh, today, today, um, I want to discuss a discernible change. A change that is not explicitly present in this passage, uh, but is obviously present at this point in time. The giving of the Holy Spirit is what the Father had promised, and uh, it was for the express purpose of becoming witnesses to all the earth, to all the inhabited earth. Chapter 1 and verse 8, beginning in Jerusalem. And as I said, this, this passage marks the, the beginning of the church. Uh, this is our introduction to the bride of Christ. So it is through power of the Holy Spirit by which this bride becomes fruitful and she multiplies. She multiplies to fill the earth, the already inhabited earth. And so today, uh, today's discussion discusses how the church, how Jesus' bride reproduces. Right? Children, cover your ears. But it's going to be a bit of a topical message. This is in result of, well, in partially in respect to a question that I received during membership orientation just a few weeks ago. Uh, a question that I have never addressed directly from the pulpit uh, in front of all of us. And uh, I have individually, but I realize I must. There are ethical concerns, there are moral concerns and uh, I need to cover this, uh, but I'm not going to tell you immediately what the topic is, all right? Uh, if I do, you're going to formulate conclusions and then disengage. Uh, I want us to follow a logical progression, all right? So this is going to be kind of a topical message today, not, not so much an exposition from Scripture. Now, let's just say we're Baptists today, all right? topical message. How does Jesus' bride, how does, his, how does he expect his bride to reproduce? Well, in John chapter 3, to a Pharisee named Nicodemus, he was a teacher of the law, Jesus declared, to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Nicodemus essentially replied, you know, what do you mean? Can a grown man uh, re-enter his, his mother's womb again after he's already old? And I imagine Jesus may be a little bit frustrated uh, as he responded like this. 
that which is born of the flesh, that's just flesh, that's all it is, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. And then get this. Jesus said in John 3, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going, and so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is likened to the wind. The Spirit is not wind, okay, uh, that's figurative language, it's like a wind. You can't control the Spirit, yet you can hear Him. There's evidence. Uh, the Spirit makes a noise. And isn't it interesting how our passage says that when the Spirit entered, there was a noise. It was like a rushing wind. And immediately through utterance, those who were in the room began making noise, a loud noise. And they intelligently began to declare the mighty deeds of God. That, friends, is someone, verse 4, who is filled with the Spirit of God. They declare the mighty deeds of God intelligibly, not senseless babble. And just being born of flesh, just being born of the womb, it's insignificant by comparison. And you must be reborn by the Spirit to enter God's kingdom. It's a must. Uh, folks, this is a discernible change for Israel. This is a notable change for that nation. In Israel, it mattered a whole lot to those 12 tribes to whom you were born. Lineage, genealogy, your progeny, they were all tracked and recorded judiciously. By, but natural, physical birth still never got Israelites into the kingdom of God. Only, only a small remnant of Israel, ethnic Israel, was ever saved by faith. In fact, Paul states in Philippians 2, I had to count prideful stuff like belonging to a particular tribe as dung so that I might enter the kingdom. So I might enter the kingdom of Christ on the basis of faith. I had to count where I came from as dung. Mere physical birth, then, will not cut it. In Titus 3, verse 9, after Christ's birth had established the terminating point for all biblical, biblically recorded genealogy, all that genealogy in the Old Testament stops at Jesus Christ. And Paul declares controversies about genealogies are unprofitable and worthless. It matters not to whom you were born, but only whether you have been reborn by faith. Grace by faith acted the same under the Old Covenant with Israel, but there was a caveat. There was a caveat. Because among the 12 tribes, to whom you were born mattered. It mattered a lot. For just, a, for just one example, 
the, the tribal lineage determined whether or not you would be a priest. You were of the tribe of Levi. Uh, recorded lineage, precise lineages that were kept in the temple until it was burned in 70 AD, they would determine whether or not you are king over all Israel. Uh, so it was very important uh, for them uh, in the Old Testament. But in the church, to everyone who is born again, we are all a royal and holy priesthood. All of us. First Peter 2.5. Christ's church gives equal footing to everybody. This was the promise of Jeremiah chapter 31 at the dawn of the new covenant. The Lord says, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Unlike Israel, every person qualified under this new covenant is elect. Everyone is elect qualified under the new covenant. Israel, no. Some were just Jewish. But under the 12 tribes of the old covenant, to whom you were physically born, always mattered greatly. How about under the 12 apostles? It matters not at all. Jew, Greek, slave, Scythian, rich, poor, black, white. There is no intrinsic merit to whom you were born. Israel recorded every single de de uh, descendant of each tribe. They kept meticulous records in the temple. Have you ever noticed that there is not a single reference in the New Testament as to a name of a child who was born to an apostle? Folks, that is what you call an intentional omission. Do you expect that none of the apostles had children? Do you think they all, like Paul, remained single? No, no I'm sure that some had children. We know that at least a few took wives, but who they are doesn't matter. You ever read a book by Martin Luther Jr. or Charles Spurgeon Jr.? Unlikely. There exists no dynasties in Christ's church. We, we've learned this before. There's no Rockefellers. There, there's no Kennedys. There's, there's no Thurston Howell III. And recognizing this, recognizing this, do we propagate a Christian race through having children? No. No. Just as you can't control the wind, you cannot control a child's spiritual rebirth. The sovereign spirit, the sovereign spirit blows where he wishes, and so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And consequently, the bride of Christ, the bride of Christ becomes fruitful and fills the earth through spiritual reproduction, not dependent on any physical 
reproduction. This is one of the reasons, and this isn't my point yet. We're just on the path to getting to my point, which I was hesitant to talk about today, by the way. Could get me in some trouble. It's happened before. This is one of the reasons the Apostle Paul is so confident in 1 Corinthians 7, 26. He says, or he writes, I think then that it is good, in view of the present distress, that it is good, notice he says it twice, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek, seek to be released. Are you released from a wife. Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life. And I am trying to spare you, writes Paul. That, that statement is very general. Such will have trouble in this life. Some of you are Look around and say, yeah, I got some trouble. <laughs> a little trouble, three-year-old trouble running around. The word there is actually thalipsis, which we've learned is tribulation. I've got a little tribulation in my life. Paul's trying to spare us. A few verses prior, Paul states this, I wish you were all like me, single, childless, offering undistracted service to the Lord. Why does he do that? Paul gives a reason. Here's the reason. He says, because he who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. Is that not true? One who is married or one who has children, your, your interests are divided. You, you want to please them as well, Paul says. There's trouble. Some have vainly sought to identify what that present distress was. Well, what was that distress? Paul won't tell you. He's a master at that, because if he told us exactly what that distress was, we'd say, wow, that's not our distress. It doesn't apply to me. No, he just leaves it as distress, doing, identifying what kind of distress is irrelevant. There are always distresses present in this life. We are always dealing with troubles Therefore, Paul supplies endorsement to his own singleness. He says, This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. This passage is one reason that remaining celibate for the purpose of serving Christ... It historically has been highly esteemed by the church. One of my professors at Dell Seminary uh, himself actually took a vow of celibacy uh, in order to, to concentrate all of his time 
on the kingdom of God, undistracted service to the Lord. Many early church bishops, moved not by law, not because the church told them, many early church bishops, moved by the Spirit, did the same because they imitated Paul and Timothy and Titus. And others whom Paul discipled and who accepted Paul's plea to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. And our Lord spoke to this very same subject in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 12. It's after discussing a concern about divorce, probably some trouble, right? His disciples reacted saying, it's better not to marry. And Jesus' reply, Jesus said, not all men can accept this statement. What statement? That it's better not to marry. Jesus said, not all men can accept this statement, but only to those whom it is given. There are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, born infertile. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by man, castration for court purposes, kingly court. And Jesus says there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That's celibacy. And Jesus said, he who is able to accept this, let him accept it. For those who can accept it, celibacy, lifelong celibacy in ministry is a high calling. We're still not to the point I'm going to make yet, all right? It's still the logical progression. We've got a ways to go yet. Under the new covenant, there is clearly no standing There's no standing command to physically reproduce and multiply to fill the earth. Folks, the the earth is pretty full and getting fuller. Rather, Genesis 1 verse 22 has been superseded by Jesus' command to his bride to be fruitful and multiply and to reach the ends of the earth. Not by procreation, but by spiritual recreation, being born again, reaching the already inhabited earth with the gospel. That's the, that's the big command from Christ, uh, not filling the earth as in Genesis chapter 1. You don't see that command repeated in the New Testament. The command is to go reach the inhabited earth, as we discussed this morning in an adult Bible class. Therefore, Christians who secure undistracted devotion to the Lord are not at a kingdom disadvantage by not marrying or by not having children. Both Paul and Jesus rather assure that for kingdom procreation, such people will actually experience an advantage. A single man or woman will actually experience less hindrance and less trouble for multiplying 
for the kingdom of God, being fruitful and multiplying. These are some of the reasons that uh, the church, the historic church, has never required a bishop or an elder or a pastor to be married, nor uh, such in my case to have children. Physical reproduction is not the issue. It's also one reason why many churches, including us, were fit perfectly uh, comfortable hiring an associate pastor, Gerald, who was single at the time. He'd be a pastor, though he's single. Uh, that reference is one of the things I was asked about, but we're still not there. That reference uh, uh, to elders and deacons having a believing wife or believing children that, that is in the pastoral epistles, it's not given as a qualification for leadership. Listen to me. Many men have a believing wife and have obedient children, but are nonetheless unqualified to lead. That's not the qualification, having a married or being married with a wife. Married's not a qualification. Rather, Paul's intent is to ensure that an unbelieving wife or rebellious children become disqualifications from leadership. Because if your wife or your children are unwilling to follow the husband's lead to church, so how then can he lead the church? Even if it's not the husband's fault, which often it is not, the optics for leadership are poor. But using the entire corpus of the Pauline epistles, Paul himself, a single man, reveals that simply having even a believing wife cannot qualify you for leadership, oh, but she can disqualify you from leadership. The same is true with children. Paul and, Jesus, uh, Paul and Jesus suggest it's better not to marry. It's good to not marry. Uh, so there's never existed a scriptural command for church leaders to marry or to have children. Uh, scriptural authority uh, makes that irrelevant. Some people say, well, how can, how can a single man uh, counsel me or us uh, on marriage? He hasn't experienced what I've experienced in marriage. Consultation from the Bible has, is not founded on personal experience. Advice from the Bible is founded on the Word of God, properly declaring the Word of God. I don't have to share your experience if you are um, a gay man. Some will say, you know, you just don't understand my, my problem. You, you don't have the experience that I have. I don't need your experience. The Word of God is the Word of God. Paul and Jesus suggest overall it's better to not marry. But the question I received, here it is. I'm going to take a long drink after this one. The question I received in membership orientation was this. Do we have any constitutional position on the use of birth control? 
Um, I've never touched on this as a group, just individually. And uh, a parallel question on the same topic could be rephrased in this way. In response to Genesis chapter 1, verse 22, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, are all Christians scripturally required to repeatedly procreate as rapidly as genetically feasible? The answer is no. You are more than fine to decide to remain single, and therefore God completely accepts your service without children. The, the bride's only command from the bridegroom is to procreate spiritually through the gospel. Folks, we are not populating the earth with a Christian race. We are populating the earth with a totally depraved race. The only way for Jesus' bride to reproduce is through preaching the gospel. And in Acts chapter 2, we will see it happening first through the preaching of Peter. Here comes the bride. Get ready to multiply. There are pastoral concerns, and this is what, what made my heart heavy in having to address this. I've never encountered this with, with our church, um, but I have met members of what seems to be a sect of religion that pressures couples to procreate profusely. Now, you might see the van loaded with 12 children and an expectant mother driving uh, along as well. And uh, you can sense by talking to the individual uh, or individuals that re reproduction has become a doctrine for them. It's an, essential, it's an essential doctrine for them. They'll sometimes use the Old Testament as a proof text. You know, many of Israel's patriarchs and, and even King David had, had more than a dozen children. Yeah, yeah. They also had multiple wives. David had, we can identify, about 20 children. He also had eight wives. We don't do that today. The woman was not given for procreation. Marriage was given for companionship. God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. That's the justification for the woman. Still, the, re the reality is that not all, but most couples expect to have children. Most do. Some can't have them. Like Zachariah and Elizabeth, uh, they're not living at a spiritual disadvantage. Yet with modern scientific advances, um, some men can increase sperm production through hormonal therapies. They, they influence the pituitary gland. Uh, there exist numerous pharmaceuticals, drugs, to, to stimulate the natural fertility within both men and women prior to conception. Should Christians have an objection to that? You may. But I don't. If there is a safe way for Bob to increase the chances that he and Anne can have a child, I'm not going to tell a Christian couple they can't do that. 
Some may ask, well, but isn't that interfering with God's sovereignty? No. Nobody on earth can interfere with God's sovereignty. That, that would make you God. Um, people get a little confused on this. We can't interfere with God's sovereignty. We can only either sin or not sin. God's going to do what He's going to do. Is family planning, through increasing a man's fertility, by hormonal therapy, a sinful choice? Not in my book. Family planning does not thwart God's sovereignty. By comparison to that, how about if a woman recently had a baby, and, and you know, dad and mom are going to be careful with, with rhythm, for, for a while. Careful to avoid another pregnancy for a few months until that infant grows. We're going to avoid that. Uh, is that sin? No. Historically, that's been recognized as family planning. What if a mother has two children, becomes chronically and irreversibly ill, not able to function to care for more children, or maybe even the ones she has, can that couple be careful with rhythm or other forms of prevention? How about other measures such as a prophylactic? I don't have a conviction, nor would I tell couples a couple that they cannot. Uh, there are numerous women in our midst who've opted to have a hysterectomy for serious medical reasons or they've had their tubes tied. And in caring for her health, has a woman who had, has had a hysterectomy interfered with God's sovereignty? No. These medical advances are a result of God's sovereignty. So using a consistent logic, If you can use certain hormones to increase a man's fertility, can you also use hormones as a prophylactic to decrease fertility? See where I'm coming from? Family planning has to be left up to you. The number of children that a man and his wife decide their income can afford to feed, clothe, medicate, and educate must be left up to you. Your friends may encourage you to have more. Your mother might encourage you to have more. But they aren't likely going to pay for your child's private school. It is not their decision, nor is it mine. But if you'd like for me to identify for you what I believe is crossing the line. Everybody likes that. Show me where the line is. I'll give you one. I believe strongly that a moral line is crossed when treatments, either to increase fertility or decrease fertility, intervene after the conception with a fertilized embryo. Because conception is when life begins. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, 
the child who is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. The Bible places life at conception. That statement actually is in our Constitution, okay? That's something we take a stand on. So family planning, that is your family's responsibility, not mine or anybody else's, folks, but educate yourself on the hormonal therapy, uh, how your birth control functions. There are, and this is the, the ethical, the moral concern uh, I had. I'm like, I have, to, I have to speak about this. Some forms of birth control are engineered to intervene and discard a fertilized egg after conception. I would categorize that as abortion. Likewise, some forms of fertility treatment result in the discarding of several leftover fertilized eggs. So educate yourself. Educate yourself. Um, and educating yourself on fertility and birth control is the concern I felt compelled to address today. Uh, the ball's in your court. It's in your court. Uh, th there is no standing command under the New Testament or New Covenant for Christians to marry or to have children uh, or if married, compelling them to have more children than they feel they can actually care for. Larger families than they believe they can manage or educate. Um, at the same time, there is nothing preventing you from filling your quiver. In fact, I think a few of you are shopping for a larger quiver. Yeah. Praise the Lord. We always celebrate new births as a gift from the Lord, including celebration from those of us who are childless. We think it's wonderful when people have babies. Uh, but as long as family planning occurs previous to fertilization, prior to it, our Constitution leaves that decision entirely up to your liberty in Christ. That decision resides within the institutional sphere of the family. No one else can decide how many children you should or should not have, nor insist when you have to stop. Uh, when people try to enforce a personal doctrine they have formulated, then that does become within the sphere of the institution of the church. Uh, our elders strive to defend Christian liberty. Wow, that, that is more than I wanted to say today. Um, but, but I do realize that there probably was more than one or two uh, in, in our midst who really wanted a little clarification on that, uh, there you have it.